0: I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter twenty-nine, Acts twenty-nine, verse one. And as we launch this new season, we are in a series called Unstoppable, where we are asking what it takes for Southwind's Church to be an unstoppable force for God's glory and for the good of the communities in which God has placed us. And if you don't know this, the book of Acts is a glorious story of the Church, the people of God, and the Bible teaches that the church of jesus christ is the hope of the world so i want you to turn to acts 29 or maybe you've noticed there is no acts 29. you knew that all along didn't you 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 were just turning there so that the person sitting next to you who was turning there wouldn't be embarrassed that they didn't know what you already knew right Well, there's a reason Acts 29 is not there, and it's simply this. Acts 29 is still being written. The final chapter of the glorious story of the church, which is the hope of the world, is not yet complete. In every small-town church, in every inner-city storefront where a brand of brothers and sisters meets together, in every house church that meets underground and illegally in China, in gatherings of the saints of every size, among every tribe, every tongue, every people group, all around the world, this never-ending story, it is going on. And if you stop to think about it, the Christ follower is sitting next to you is writing Acts 29 two. The good news of Jesus Christ is being lived and being proclaimed in their neighborhood where they were, hopefully among their family. It is going on because God is still searching for and God is still reclaiming lost and dying men and women. The power of the Holy Spirit is being poured out still on humanity. That is not over, that is not past. We are not just treading water until Jesus comes back. God is still writing the story of his church and he's doing it. Through ordinary people like you and me, others have come before us, and others are going to come after us. Should the Lord tarry in His return, but our day, our time, to write our part in this glorious story of the hope of the the world—the Church—it is going on. And so, I want to ask a real personal question: What part do you want to write? When that day comes, when Acts 29 is opened up and all creation stands on tiptoe to read it, and you come to the paragraph with your name on it, what do you want it to say? It's going to be there. So what is going to be written next to your name? We're talking today about how we can share Jesus boldly. And I do want you to turn to Acts, but actually it's Acts number one chapter one there really is an acts chapter one in case you're wondering Um, i won't do that to you again i you can trust me uh, from now on to tell you the right place to turn at least for today Um, i'm not making promises forever (laughs) and our key verse as you may have already noticed is acts chapter one verse eight and what we're going to do today is something unusual we're going to kind of do a flyover tour of the entire book of acts all 28 chapters And I want to start here because Acts 1-8 gives us really a a map of the entire book. Let me read what it says. Jesus is speaking. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I told you this is kind of a map of the book. You might say it this way. Acts 1-8 gives us an outline of the entire book as well. It goes like this. In Acts 1, Jesus is giving instructions to his followers. His prophecy about the Holy Spirit coming on them to give them power. That happens in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts 3 through 7 tells the story of how they are Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, the holy city. And then for the next three and a half chapters, kind of into the middle of Acts 11, we read about how they are witnesses in Judea and Samaria, which is a a place roughly equivalent to the Holy Land. This is the home of the people of Israel and the Samaritans, the the, the people that Jewish people saw as the half-breed semi-pagans. And then you go in the rest of the book of Acts, and it's the story of how they become witnesses to the ends of the earth. So there's a sense in which we see the whole book of Acts in this one verse, Acts 1-8. And this book of Acts is showing us how Jesus is placing his mission into the hands of his followers he says here you will be my witnesses and that tells us right off the bat it's your job my job to testify to the truth to share jesus boldly because we're all witnesses maybe you know this but this is a a legal term taken from the legal world it's about uh, someone who is just telling what they have seen in fact uh, the Greek word for witness is martus, we get our word martyr from this word. A martyr is someone who is willing to give their life to tell the truth of what they have seen, the truth about the gospel. And, and within this framework that I've set out for you here, this framework of Acts 1-8, you, you would see if you studied that Acts has, has seven major sections And scholars point out that each of these sections concludes as the gospel is spreading with this this statement that Luke records about the growth of the church, about what happens when Christ's followers share Jesus boldly. And what we're going to do today is we're going to focus in on one truth taken from each of these seven summary statements, one truth that will help us, if we'll apply it, Uh, take a step farther in our journey of writing acts 29 and i'm going to put this in the form each time of a question and answer so you're going to see seven questions seven answers that will help us to do what god calls us to do which is to share jesus boldly you know this is your job right this is your job it's my job it's our job sharing jesus boldly well the first summary statement you can look it up is in acts 2 42 to 47 and acts 2 of course tells the story of pentecost the church that's born on that day of pentecost and verse 47 wraps up this summary statement and says and the lord added to their number daily those who were being saved and the first question now is who's at work and i want you to notice it does not say the people in the church did it through their clever strategies or their persuasive techniques. In fact, it doesn't say they did it at all. Who is at work? Well, the answer is God is at work. God is at work. When we share the gospel boldly, God is at work work. Luke writes, the Lord added to their number. Now, let's be clear. This does not mean they were passive. They were very active, but as they worked, God was at work, and it is still true today. God is still at work, and here's the therefore on this one. Therefore, you can be utterly bold. Therefore, be bold. You can be bold in proclaiming the gospel because you always know God is at work. God is at work. Some time ago, I came across a great story. It's kind of an example of sharing boldly um, the kind of boldness that characterized Jesus' followers, I think, in these earliest days, and I'm going to read it for you. Uh, The author is uh, named Jeffrey Cotter. He's a Presbyterian pastor, and at the time he wrote this, he didn't have a job. In fact, he was flying home from a job interview, and he said he was, you know, kind of casual. He's dressed in old jeans and a t-shirt and he found himself on this plane sitting next to the guy like the total opposite of him very expensive suit had his laptop out wall street journal i mean the whole nine yards and cotter said he did not want to get in a conversation with this guy uh, especially about a job because this guy obviously had a really good job and he didn't have one at all he doesn't want to talk about it so i'm going to pick the story up at this point he writes this All that changed because he had already turned and greeted me. I said I was fine, of course. Realizing I had to beat him to the punch, I asked him what he did, and he was only too eager to respond. I'm in the figure salon business, he said. We can change a woman's self-concept by changing her body. It's a very profound, powerful thing. His pride spoke between the lines. "You, You look my age, I said. How long have you been at this? He said, well, I just graduated from the University of Michigan's Business Administration School. They have given me so much responsibility already, and I feel very honored. In fact, I hope to eventually manage the entire Western organization. So you're a national organization, I asked, impressed, despite myself. Yes, we're the fastest-growing company of our kind in the nation. It's good to be a part of an organization like that, don't you think? And I nodded, and I thought, that's impressive proud of his work and accomplishments why can't christians be proud like that why are we so often apologetic about our faith in our church looking at my clothing he asked the inevitable question and what do you do the spirit began to brood over the face of the deep order and power emerged from chaos a voice in a whisper reminded me let him who boasts boast in the lord It's interesting that we have similar business interests, I said. You're in the body-changing business. I'm in the personality-changing business. We apply basic theocratic principles to accomplish indigenous personality modification. (laughs) He was hooked, but I knew he would never admit it. Pride is powerful. You know, I've heard about that, he replied, but do you have an office here in this city? Oh, we have many offices. We have offices up and down the state. In fact, we're national. We have at least one office in every state. He had this puzzled look on his face. He was searching his mind to identify this huge company he must have read or heard about, perhaps in his Wall Street Journal. As a matter of fact, I said, we've gone international. And management has a plan to put at least one office in every country of the world by the end of this business era. I paused do you have that in your business? (laughs) Well, no, not yet, he answered, but you mentioned management. How do they make it work? I said, it's a family concern. There's a father and there's a son and they run everything. (laughs) It must take a lot of capital, he said skeptically. You mean money, I said? I suppose so. No one knows just how much it takes, but we never worry because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy. And the money, well, it's just there. Those of us in the organization have a saying about our boss. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's into ranching too, asked my captive (laughs) friend. No, it's just a saying we use to indicate his wealth. My friend sat back, musing over our conversation. What about you, he asked. The employees? Well, there's something to see. They have a spirit that pervades the organization. It it works like this. The father and the son love each other so much. Their love filters down through the organization so that we all find ourselves loving one another too. I know this sounds old-fashioned in a world like ours, but I know people in the organization who are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your business? I was almost shouting now. People were starting to shift noticeably in their seats. He said, oh, not yet. <laughs> Quickly changing strategies, he said, but do you have good benefits? They're substantial. I counted with a gleam. I have complete life insurance, fire insurance, all the basics. You might not believe this, but it's true. I have holdings in a mansion that's being built for me right now for my retirement. Do you have that in your business? Not yet, he answered wistfully, but the light was dawning. You know, one thing bothers me about all that you've said. I've read the journals, and if your business is all you say it is, why haven't I heard about it before now? That's a good question, I said. After all, we have a 2,000-year-old tradition. And he said, wait a minute, and I said, you're right. I'm talking about the church. He then goes on. To write about how he and this new friend became more than casual strangers during the next few moments as they continued to talk so who is at work well it's always god therefore we can be bold that's why the apostle paul says this in romans 1:16: i am not ashamed of the gospel Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. See, the gospel is life to all who believe, to every single person on planet earth. So here's the challenge today. Are you ready for it? Be one step bolder this week. One step bolder in sharing the good news. Will you assess your boldness level and in proclaiming the gospel and wherever that is right now, will you take one more step, one more risk this week? For some of you, that just might mean that you start praying for someone who doesn't know God yet. You pray that they're going to come to know him. For some of you, it may mean that you take a step and you ask someone a question about their spiritual life. Just one question to see where that takes the conversation. For some of you, it may mean you need to issue a challenge to somebody you've already been talking to for them to take what they've heard more seriously. For some of you, it may mean that you need to write a note or show care for someone that you haven't cared about yet. You're, you're going to begin to build into their lives. But whatever it is for you, will you take one step and will you take that step with great boldness do not be ashamed of the gospel for god is at work amen second summary statement is Acts 6 7 now the chapters after pentecost tell us about their witness in jerusalem about the growth uh, of the church and this is what we read next in this verse luke writes so the word of god spread The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Luke tells us there's growth. But there's something kind of unusual. He slides in there. And you might run over it quickly if you don't stop. But who's joining the church now? And the answer, of course, is the priests. He singles the priests out here. Why would he do that? And I think the answer is probably because they were the last people in the world that any Christian would have expected to respond to the gospel. Does that make sense? See, many people are meeting Jesus, and even priests, these people, we never expected to respond. Even they are responding to the gospel. And we see this pattern emerging through Acts. Later on, when the Gentiles respond to the gospel, we go to Acts 10 and 11, we see God making it so clear that he has a longing to bring the people outside, inside, even when the people inside think it's never going to happen. In Acts 10, 44, Peter's proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. And as Peter speaks, the Gentiles open themselves to God and God pours his spirit out on them. Verse 45 says, the Jewish believers are shocked. They are astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. It's like these people are saying, unbelievable, what's God going to do next? He's even pouring out his grace on the Gentiles for crying out loud. They just can't believe it. So here's the question, who's too far from God to hear the gospel? Who's too far away that someone shouldn't go to them with good news? Who's too far to hear? Well, the answer is no one. No one is too far away. So here's your response. So never say no for anyone. Have you ever said no for someone? never assume anyone will say no to the gospel. This week I remembered something that happened shortly after I moved to Tracy in 2003 to become your pastor. Um, I was invited to the mall food court um, where several couples were meeting to have lunch. It was the middle of the week and Seemed like a good opportunity to get to know some people I hadn't really met before, brand new pastor. And and as I walked up to the table where a bunch of them were sitting, I noticed this big red-headed guy, around 60, with his arms crossed. And someone introduced me to Dennis Murray, and I thought to myself, he doesn't like me. I don't know who he is, but he does not like me. This guy does not want to talk to me because he, this body language was actually pretty hostile. I, I'm not someone who sees that very often, you know, but I f- was feeling it. And uh, I, I found out later that his wife, Marty, had been praying for him for 30 years. And sometime after that, I don't know what led to it, actually, Dennis started showing up at Southwinds. And he started becoming more friendly and more open. I had a chance to talk to him. We had some good conversations. I know a number of other men in the church were talking to him. Sorry. On November 12, 2006, Dennis publicly professed his faith in Christ and was baptized. And uh, family's here today, part of why I saw them when they came in, and I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have trouble telling this story. Let's <laughs> see you guys out there. Um, less than two years later, uh, Dennis suffered a massive heart attack and went to be with his Lord. And then two years after that, his wife Marty also passed away. And I thought a n- number of times, and I thought again this week, what if Marty had given up? What if Marty had said no for Dennis? What if she had stopped praying, stopped being bold? And what if Dennis's friends here at Southwinds, and you guys know who you are, had they decided he's never going to respond? I mean, who's too far? Think through your life. Is there anyone you put outside the bounds? I mean, I just want to tell you today, the most hardened, the most fallen, the most sin-soaked sinner, prodigal son or prodigal daughter is just one bent knee away from the kingdom of God they're that close no one is too far no one there may be someone here today maybe god brought you here today to tell you that and that's what you need to hear because you think you're too far and i'm telling you you're not jesus will receive you right now if that's you you can trust him today if that's you no one's too far we should share jesus boldly third statement go ahead and turn to acts eight verse one this follows the martyrdom of stephen just to put it in context and after he dies this is what luke tells us on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout judea and samaria that's verse one now look at verse four those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went and then it talks about what happens next. And there's two things I want you to notice here. First, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And they've been doing a good job in the first part of that, but they're just staying in Jerusalem. They're not going out. The, the, the word is not spreading, and it's not a, an accident that persecution comes. Now, persecution is bad. When persecution happens, the authorities that do it intend to stop the gospel. But this is precisely here what God uses to spread the gospel. Do you see? Well, Luke makes it very clear here that Jesus' prediction is coming true. They're now getting out of Jerusalem. The gospel is spreading through Judea and Samaria. But there's a second thing I want you to notice, and that's who stays in Jerusalem and who goes out. Look at verse 1 again. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So the twelve stay in Jerusalem, everyone else scatters. The the professionals, if you will, the ones with the training, they stay. And it was the amateurs, the rank and file, the ordinary people, the body, they're the ones that go out. They're the ones who become witnesses in Judea and Samaria. There's a writer by the name of Michael Green who's written one of the classic books on this topic it's called evangelism in the early church and he says one of the most striking features of evangelism in the early days of the church was the people who engaged in it communicating the faith was not the preserve of the very zealous or the officially designated evangelist evangelism was the prerogative and the duty of every church member still waiting for an amen let me put the question like this. When it comes to sharing boldly, whose job is it? And the answer is my job. It's my job. Say my job. My job. Some time ago, someone at Southlands told me a story about a man in his company that he'd been praying for. He'd been looking for an opportunity to tell him about Christ and this coworker happened to be an atheist. One day this coworker invited him to play golf, and he, he said they started playing about seven in the morning, and about 7:15, this guy had cracked open his first beer. As they were playing, this man was sharing Christ, and this coworker he just kept drinking. And the man in our church, he, he didn't really think that anything was getting through because this guy was clearly, quickly getting drunk. But the next week, this man came to him and he said to him, I don't like you very much. And he said, why? The man said, I haven't been able to sleep since we played golf. And he wanted to talk more. So here was someone here at our church family who understood it's his job. I know there are others of you too, but have you figured this out yet, that it's your job to share boldly? Now, God has made us different people. We have different gifts. You may share differently than other people. You have your own particular style of sharing. I think we all do. There are some people who have special giftings in this area, but all of us are called to share. There are people in your world that God expects you to reach. Whose job is it? Say, it's my job. Here's the fourth statement. This is Acts 9.31. If you turn there, you'll see uh, in the context, Acts 9.31 is talking about the next leg of the journey. We're getting into this next section of Acts. Gospel is beginning to spread out into Judea and Samaria. And then Luke writes, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Two things coexisting here. Notice the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And then here's this phrase I want you to notice. It grew in numbers. Some people, when they read Acts, are kind of surprised to see that Acts is very careful about numbering people. We see it from the very beginning. In Acts 1-2, Jesus was with the apostles, and the 12 are now down to 11 because Judas had hanged himself. He's gone. They gather in the upper room, and now there's 120 that are there, verse 15 of chapter 1 tells us. And that just reminds us, somebody numbered. Somebody kept track. And then you go to Acts 2, after Pentecost, verse 41, it says about 3,000 were added to their number that day. In other words, someone counted them, right? Someone kept track. And I'm highlighting this because it's important to understand something. Sometimes people will say things like, you know, our our church is not into numbers. Sometimes those people will say, we're more into quality than quantity. We really want to go deep at our church. And I want to say something. I think when we say that, we are forgetting that numbers always represent people. When we moved to Tracy in 2003, uh, some of you know this, we went the long way. Instead of hopping on I-80 outside of Chicago, it was just a few miles that interstate was from our home and heading west and driving 2,100 miles, uh, we decided we were going to take an extra long trip. We decided we were going to follow the Lewis and Clark Trail. as the going to be the 200th anniversary of that expedition some of you historians know about this and and so we did that we followed this trail up the Missouri River we went through Iowa South Dakota North Dakota we went across the plains and the mountains of Montana and Idaho we then drove through Washington and Oregon and we went all the way to the Pacific four kids and a Labrador retriever in a minivan for 3,500 miles I'm a much wiser man <laughs> these days. Well, you know, along the way, we stopped quite a bit. We stopped in national parks and museums. We stopped in restaurants and rest stops. And more times than once, we would turn around and couldn't see one or more of our kids. You know, they, we just kept losing kids. They... They got distracted. They wandered off. They stopped to look at something, and we had to go find them. And I was just thinking, what if we had just, like, you know, climbed in the car and headed on down the highway? What if, you know, we, after a couple hundred miles, turned around, looked in the back seat and said, hey, there's only two kids back here. What happened to the other two? I mean, what if I had turned to Dana and said, you know what? It's good to have two quality children. (laughs) We're not into numbers in the Nolan household. (laughs) Some families are into numbers. They're always counting. They're always counting. Do we have as many today as we had yesterday? Do we have more? Do we have less? It's just this numbers thing. We're not into numbers around here. It's about quality for us. Well, you know, if parents do this kind of thing. You need to call Child Protective Services, right? (laughs) Parents are expected to keep track of numbers why because it's not about numbers it's about people and every one of them matters you know if you look at that classic passage luke chapter 15 jesus just keeps talking about how people matter to god he keeps talking about numbers a shepherd has 100 sheep and he counts them 99 are there and one is gone A woman has ten coins. She counts them, and nine are there, and one's missing. A father has two sons. He counts them, and one of them's there, and one of them is gone. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible called the Book of Numbers, right? If you're familiar with it, you know it takes its name from two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 26, and they just number God's people in those chapters. That's all they do. Why? Because God's people are precious to him as children are precious to parents every single one of them so here's the question for this one who matters to god and the answer is everyone counts everyone matters to god there is not a person born about whom God does not say, I want that one, that one's mine. I thought of that one. I sent my son Jesus to die for that one. I sacrificed the life of my son for that one. Who matters? Everyone. So I want to offer you a little discipline on this one, a little habit. You can try this out today, tomorrow, just kind of as a little exercise. And if you really want to go for it, commit your whole day as you walk through the day in your heart as you see people say to yourself about every person you see you matter to god just one day and see if you don't begin to develop a little urgency about the gospel I mean, maybe you can't make it for a whole day, then do it for an hour. If you can't make it for an hour, then do it for a half hour. But just take a block of time, do it tomorrow. And as you see people say in your heart about that person, you matter to God. Pray for that person that you're looking at because who matters? The answer is everyone. Everyone counts. God loves and numbers them all. Here's the fifth statement. This is in Acts 13, verses 48 and 49. And and this section in Luke's writing is another milestone. And what's happened here is the church has stopped waiting for persecution to share boldly. They're actively going out. Paul and Barnabas have been commissioned by the church at Antioch as missionaries. So the church is now getting intentional about making sure the gospel spreads. And we read about that in this section. And it concludes here. We are seeing that Paul and Barnabas are willing to uh, give up their lives to spread the gospel. I want you to listen to this. Why? Verse 48 and 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Now, here's the question. What's at stake in this business of the gospel? And here's the answer. Eternal life. Sharing the gospel, we need to be reminded, is never a casual matter. What is at stake anytime we're sharing the gospel is eternity. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it. It just is. And there ought to be an urgency in our hearts about this. Not a guilt trip, but an urgency. There is an urgency about God, in God's heart about this because he knows that everyone we see is destined for eternity. Do you know that? You know, as a church, we're committed to doing evangelism, to seeing people come to faith. We have a strategy that we call Connect, Grow, Serve. And a huge part of that strategy is that we all of us, every one of us, that we will be developing relationships, that we will be connecting with people outside the family of faith, people who are unchurched, that we will share our lives with them, that we will share our faith with them, that we will use the tools that our church family provides to help us down the path of doing this task of evangelism. And one of those tools would be our Sunday services. I'll just put it like this. If you are coming to services here week after week and you never invite an unchurched person, if it never occurs to you that maybe that might be a a good idea, this ought to raise a big red flag. Because the services here are a tool for us to use. They are not just here for your benefit. They're a tool to use for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Remember, eternal life is at stake. Sixth statement. Go to Acts 19, verse 20. And this is after Paul has been on one of his missionary journeys. And again, Luke says this. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, there's there's something striking about Luke's language here. He he doesn't say the church grew. What does he say grew? It's the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord grew. And he means by this here the gospel God's intention is that all people be reconciled to him through the life and teaching and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And the gospel is powerful. It is such a powerful personal force that Luke pictures it here as if it were an actual person, actually spreading widely, actually growing. And I was thinking about this. Some of us sometimes hold back from witnessing some of you do this because, here's the reason, you think you're not spiritual enough. You don't need to raise your hand, but have you ever thought I probably shouldn't say anything because I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not walking with the Lord closely enough? A lot of us have done that. And I have actually a, a pastoral word for you if this is what you do. I want you to write this down, okay? Here's my pastoral word. Stop it. <laughs> do I need to say that again? just stop it don't let it hold you back because here's the thing i want you to hear this Here, the main thing that you have to offer people is not your spirituality not your spiritual maturity do you understand that you have what you have to offer them is the gospel now if you got a problem in your life you should deal with that i'm not saying that but that's not what you have to offer anyone. What you have to offer is the gospel. And as you live the gospel, which just means you love people the way Jesus did, and then as you verbalize the gospel, when he opens doors, you, you, you tell people about it, it grows because it is full of power. It is the power of God to salvation for all who would believe. So be bold. Next question. What do I have to offer? And in this line we've been talking, the answer is the word. What you have to offer is the word, the good news. And again, you don't have your own super spirituality to offer. This is the good news. It is not your charm. It is good news for some of you, okay? (laughs) Real good news. I know who you are. Um, It's also not your debating skills, It is not the knowledge that you may have about certain things in the Bible. None of these things are what you have to offer. What ultimately matters is not me. It's not you. What matters is the gospel, the good news. That's what we have to offer. And that's what we should share. That's what we should share boldly. Okay, the final statement. This is like the last progress report. You can turn all the way to Acts 28, verse thirty. Uh, Lucas writing and the apostle paul has finally made it to rome and he needed to go there because rome was a center of the world and he knew that once he made it to rome and once the gospel got rooted in rome it would spread out across the world from there rome in fact was the end of the earth in paul's day so number seven look at verses 30 and 31 last two verses in the book for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might write after that the end. Now, you've probably done this. I think all of us have, the modern day readers of this book of Acts, where we get to this statement and we're going, what's next? What happens to Paul? Does he make it to Caesar with his appeal? Does he live? Does he die? And scholars have debated for centuries why Luke ended this way. I mean, Luke never tells us. Why? Well, I have to think that it's this. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Because Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth and by the way in case you haven't thought about it that includes Tracy that includes Mountain House that includes Lathrop and Manteca and Livermore and Patterson and Brentwood and Discovery Bay and any other place than any of us happen to live God has called us to share. Wherever you are, that's the end, your end of the earth. So now it's happened. Paul has become a bold champion in this irrepressible spread of the gospel. We have one last question, and this last question is what have I got to lose? And here's the answer nothing. What's Paul got to lose? He's in prison. He might stay there the rest of his life. He might be killed. He might have his head cut off. He might be crucified. What has he got to lose? The answer is nothing. He's proclaiming the gospel. He is the bold champion of the irrespressible spread of the gospel. He is giving his life to the one thing that matters. And when you are writing Acts 29, you are doing the same thing. I mean, when you are living to extend the kingdom of God, what is worth keeping you from doing that? Embarrassment? Fear? Busyness? See, the people in Acts 28 believed the gospel was worth dying for, and people who write Acts 29 will be gripped by the same belief. So there it is. This whole story of this glorious church all together in a nutshell who's at work as we share Jesus boldly and the answer is God who is too far away the answer is nobody whose job is it mine and who matters everyone what's at stake eternity what have I got to offer just the word what have i got to lose nothing and neither do you and this is your day this is your opportunity this is your time that god has given you to write your lines in the glorious story of his church the body of his son the hope of the world are you writing anything i'm going to ask you If you would make a commitment today to join in this task, this job that is ours, gloriously ours, because we know Jesus, I'm going to ask you today, if you would make a commitment, it's up to you what that commitment is. I'm not going to tell you that, but will you make a commitment? Will you take one more step some way, somehow learning from what God's word has taught you? Will you do that today? That's the question that's what's before us will we respond i'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and we're gonna pray and as we do the band is is gonna come out and we're gonna take some moments to pray and i just want you to be in a spirit of prayer right now and i just want to invite you to become a witness if you're not already doing that if you can do that with integrity will you will you tell god you want to join with peter and cornelius and paul and silas and barnabas and john mark and priscilla and aquila that you want to be a part of making the only history that really matters we just say to god i want to write my part i'll be one there as you pray just tell him what he's put on your heart some of us i'm confident need to respond in obedience by being baptized taking that next step. We, we need to trust Christ and make that public. And if that's the case, will you do that today? Will you commit right where you are to publicly professing Christ? You can talk to me or any of our pastors about how that will happen, but will you commit to do it today? Make that commitment.